Well, if you'll stand with me this morning, we're going to be reading from 1 Chronicles chapter 13. First Chronicles chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everyone to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands, that they may meet with us. Let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel together from Shehor of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kirith-Jerim. David and all Israel went to Bala, that is, to Kirith-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from the ark, from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, who where His name is called. They called the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Hio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all their might, even with songs and with lyres and harps tambourines and cymbals and with trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. Father, I thank you that you are a God who is loving, but also just, that you keep your word, that we have your word because you have delighted in making it something that has been passed down for generations upon generations. Father, I pray this morning that you would encourage us to be doers of your word and not just hearers only, or that we would not just be praising you with sincerity, but that our lives would demonstrate that we are following you and none other. Lord, I pray that you would help even our children, Lord, to see this in their lives, that though they might see our imperfection, Father, that they would delight in you according to your word and not according to the ways of this world or what many believe is right. Father, I pray that even this morning you would open our ears to hear your word, even the children, that they would understand your word 
and begin to see the truth that your word has in it. Guide us, Lord, we pray. Give me clarity to, to be open with your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So this passage, I was listening to the Bible recently and just continuing to see this theme in Scripture of God's call to His Word. God's call to be faithful to His Word, not just to be someone who is receiving His Word, though that is good, but that we are actually living by it. So David has a great idea. It's actually quite shocking that in the entire reign of Saul, Saul never sought to bring the ark of God to the place of worship. It's a pretty telling thing about Saul, to be honest, because that whole time the ark was there. Remember the Philistines, they took the ark and every place they put it, first they put it in the house of Dagon and what happened? Dagon bowed before him, then the next day his head was gone, or his arms were gone, I think, and then the next day it was his head. And then people started getting tumors wherever it was sent, and then they sent it to this one uh, village or town, and they're like, what, do you send this here to kill us all? Like, they saw that God's presence was there, and that God was not happy with their life. And because of the presence of the ark, they were unable to have any real relationship uh, with it. And so they decided, okay, let's do this. Let's get a, let's get some cows and just hook it up to a new cart and see where they go. And they, they put inside of it some golden tumors and golden mice, because that was another part of the problem. And they sent them off, and it, it showed up here at the house of... Uh, sorry, I lost my place here. I don't know why I, I can't find it. But anyways, at his the home where this was found. And so they had been purposely guarding this the whole time, taking care. But Saul had never sought to actually bring the ark to wherever he was reigning, to be at home with him. And this shows a sincerity on the part of David. David was very sincere about his relationship with the Lord, but the problem was that he was following his own thoughts and opinions. And we'll see that. Right? Because he he gets he consults with everyone. He's like, okay, let's bring everyone here. Everyone in Israel. Even as far as those that are living on the Nile in Egypt. I mean that's a long ways away. And we're going to bring them here together and we're going to bring the Ark of God up to the city of David. Sounds like a great plan. It's not a it's not a bad idea. The problem is, the way that David goes about executing this is where the problem lies. And that starts 
right there in verse 6. So David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is Kiriath-Jarim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim where his name is called. Very interesting. We know that the ark of God had the mercy seat on it and there were cherubim above that. I think it's a very good picture. The way they describe who the Lord is here in verse 6 is a reminder to us what the ark of God and especially the mercy seat represented, God's presence. That God was enthroned above the cherubim, even above this representation of himself. And so these cherubim were acting as a, as a covering over the mercy seat, where that blood would be poured out, where that sacrificial lamb would be sacrificed. And it also makes you think about, so in the time of Saul, were they not celebrating Passover? We don't know. It, it seems very interesting that Saul never sought the ark of God during his reign. So it's very likely that during the time that David, or that Saul was king, that no Passover, no Day of Atonement was being taken, celebrated. It reminds you a lot of the bad kings who chose not to worship God at all, much less in sincerity without truth. So David is trying, it seems, to restore right worship of God in the people of Israel. I mean, how could that be wrong? I mean, it's okay. Let's just do whatever it takes to get it done. Right? Because David is not seeking to bring worship to himself. He's seeking to worship the God who created all things. The Lord, the King of Kings. Which, by the way, many in the church today are trying to get rid of that language. Because kings oppress and lords oppress. Right? It's all this new theology that's based on critical race theory and other, even this Black Lives Matter issue that's coming around. You know, we can't have a God who's a king or a lord because he, he will only do wickedly. It's like they've forgotten there are good kings, there are good lords, there are good men who reigned. It's the evil men that are the reason why there's sin rampant and why there's oppression. God is the God who is to be served because He is righteous and perfect and holy. So, David is seeking to restore worship, right worship of God, bringing the ark into Jerusalem, 
So verse 7, this begins. He says, They carried the ark of God on a new cart. Oh, great. A brand new one. Never been used. That's great job, David. From the house of Abinadab. There we go. That was the... <laughs> this whole time I was looking for his name, and I, I totally lost it. But Abinadab, he had been blessed the whole time. If you, if you look at the passage when the, the ark comes to his house, it was a blessing upon him. So they, they go to his house, they get the ark, they put it on this new cart. And interestingly, I don't know if you remember from the law, when, when the ark was, the poles for the ark were placed in, they left them. They didn't take them out. God actually told them to leave the poles for the ark in it. And so they had to pick the ark up by the poles and put it on the cart. Because we, we need to remember they did not touch the ark directly or God would have killed someone right then and there. So those, those poles were already in the ark. They were once they put them in the ark, they were not or in in their rings, they were not to take them out. So this whole time that had been the case. So they picked these, pick it up by the means by which God meant to transport and put it on the cart. And then Uzzah and, I don't know if you say Ohio, like almost the state, or Ohio, it's probably Ohio. And they drove the cart. And then you just see this glorious sight in verse 8, Right? David and all Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all their might. What sincerity and joy and, and worship. Surely God would accept this. I mean, yeah, maybe they're putting it on a cart, but I mean, surely this is, this is great. They're even with songs and with lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and with trumpets. I mean, I think a lot of churches would have liked this worship experience. I mean, even us, we would desire to have this heart to worship Him with all of our might and to, to, to do so with all that we have. So up to this point, it seems like everything is going according to plan. God is going to be worshipped properly in, by His people now. But then in verse 9, we have the word, when. When they were, uh, got to a location, something happened. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark. Why did he do this? Because the oxen nearly upset it. Nearly toppled it. So was Uzzah trying to touch the ark out of malice or bad intent? No, it seems like his motivations were so the ark would not fall. But... 
what verse 10 says makes you wonder, why, Lord? Right? He says, the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he had put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Now, that means that what Uzzah did was of such extreme consequence that he was killed on the spot. God did not allow him to live. He didn't have bad intent. He wasn't trying to break the law, but because he was not aware of the law, God killed him because he was not doing and David was not doing according to what God had commanded. So it says in verse 11, Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day, which means the breaking or uh, the breakthrough of Uzzah. And he began to question, how can I bring the ark to the Lord? Right? David's saying, this is the way to do it. Maybe he remembers the story of the ark being put on a cart by the Philistines to bring it back to Israel. And he thinks, well, that worked then. It must work now. What's interesting is when it was sent by the Philistines, they didn't send anyone with the ark. They just let the cows go. So, though David was angry with the Lord, he realized that something must be amiss. Something was wrong because God would not just kill Uzzah for the fun of it. He knew God is a just God. He knew God was a loving God. And He's gracious and merciful. So, if God is all these things, then God must have had a reason, and I need to find out why He did this. And so, David calls a halt. Okay, we got to leave the ark here. So they leave it at the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite. And you begin to wonder okay, David, what was. How can you? Well, we see what David finds out in three months, right? Because the ark is left. You see that at the end of. Chapter 13, it's left at his house for three months. But in verse 15, we see the successful transportation of the ark to Jerusalem. Starting in verse 2 of chapter 15, it says, Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God. Of God and to minister to Him forever. So that's his first thing. No one but them, no one but the Levites. What else? And David assembled all Israel at the at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites. 
the sons of Kohath, Uriel, the chief. We just have a big list of people that he called up. Then verse 11, Then David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asai, Joel, Shammai, Eli, Abinadab, and said to them, You are the heads of the father's household of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the God of the Lord God of Israel. So not only did it have to be Levites, they had to be consecrated. Why would that be? Well, look with me in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15. Let's look at verse, yeah, 4 verse 15. When Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy, what does the word holy mean again? Set apart. To what? To God. The holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, so that they will not touch the holy objects, and die. So the covering was to keep them from touching them accidentally. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. And then in verse Numbers chapter 7, verse 9, it says, But he did not give any to the sons of Kohath, so things to do, because theirs was the service of the holy objects which they carried on the shoulder. So the sons of Kohath had this job to carry holy objects, objects that had been dedicated and set apart to the worship of God. And so because these things were holy... The people who carried them had to be set apart or consecrated to the Lord. And they had to be God's chosen people, the Levites, and specifically the sons of Kohath. They were to carry as consecrated to the Lord. They were consecrated as a tribe of Levites, within the tribe of Levites, to carry the ark. They were the ones set apart by God through Moses and Aaron to carry the ark. Them alone. So it looks like in the three months from the time that David made the mistake of carrying it on a cart and allowing Uzzah and Ohio to carry, to drive the ark, that in that time, David must have read the law. He did his research. He began to seek the Lord to find out, Lord, why did this not work and how can I worship you rightly? And it made me think of this question. Is sincerity sufficient? 
And that's the title of today's message. Is sincerity sufficient? Because David was not insincere in chapter 13. But God did not receive that because it was not according to his word. And we'll see why I'm saying that. So again, he's talking to the Levites. He's saying, consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, relatives, that you may bring up the ark of God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for you. So for it to be possible, you have to, to be consecrated. And then in verse 13, this seems to be the conclusion that David came to in chapter 15, verse 13. Because you did not carry it, At the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us. For we did not seek him according to the ordinance. David learned his lesson. He realized that he was not worshiping God or doing what God had called them to do according to his decree. That's what this word can mean, decree. Or judgment. This is the word mishpat, which is used hundreds, maybe not, well, probably hundreds of times in Psalm 119, this word. At least a hundred, probably. I mean, there's 140 verses, and this word is used. In the book of Psalms, it's probably over a thousand times this word Mishpat is used to speak of God's judgments. David loved them. He spoke of them with delight. Most often, we as people, especially American culture, are anti-decrees. I'm not talking about a word starting with an M uh, and ending in date. Uh, (laughs) But... We have this anti, oh, how could God require something of us? And then there's even this anti-king and, and being under a extreme authority, a totalitarian authority. God is a totalitarian authority, but he's a benevolent one who loves his people. He never leaves his people out to dry, as we use that expression. So God made a decree. We saw that in Numbers chapter 7 and Numbers chapter 4. And it's even in Exodus as well. So we see in verse 15, The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon as Moses had commanded Commanded according to the word of the Lord. This was a command of the Lord. It was not a give or take. It's not an option. Why? These things were consecrated to the Lord. They were holy objects, holy unto the Lord. Then the people that God had set up to to carry this ark were also holy unto the Lord, consecrated to His service. If from the beginning David had sought to worship him according to God's commands, 
to God's decree, to God's ordinance, chapter 13 would not have happened. Uzzah would not have died. But God is righteous and just. And when He gives a command, He's calling us to listen. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make us all legalists here. Because that's oftentimes you start talking about commands, and in the church we start saying, oh no, we're going, getting on the legalistic train and, and, and going to end up there. But you may be thinking, I mean, this is Old Testament. How in the world can this apply to us in the New? And we're under the New Covenant, the Covenant of Grace. Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. So Jesus is talking about the way to heaven leading up to this. He's talking about the narrow versus the wide gate. And then the tree and its fruit. You know, a, one tree is not going to bear a different fruit than the tree that it's, that it's rooted in. So a, a good tree is not going to bear bad fruit and a bad fr- tree is not going to bear good fruit. And he ends that, he's in verse 19, he says, Every tree produces good, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So there is going to be fruit in a Christian's life. That's what Jesus is saying. You will know someone is to be trusted, especially false prophets, by the fruit of their life. And then in verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So is saying, Lord, Lord, enough? You said a prayer once. Is that enough? Not according to Jesus. This isn't... Old Testament, this is Jesus Christ, our Lord. What's the problem, does it seem here in verse 21? The problem is, with these people, is that they do not do the will of the Father. How in the world would they know that? Let's find out. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? How many here can attest to all those things? I can't. I mean, if we met somebody that felt you know, had all those things, we would have a hard time not believing that they're a child of God. Right? They're prophesying in the name of God and they're they're casting, we're seeing demons cast out and we're seeing miracles done. 
we would be quickly thinking this person is of the Lord. But God is saying, they're asking this question. He says, well, what's God's reply to these people? That These people who are seemingly producing fruit that is good. Right? Is this the fruit that God is looking for? Verse 23. And then I will declare to you, or to them, I never... Huh? Never? I never knew you? I never knew you. You mean this person who prophesied in the name of the Lord, who cast out demons in the name of the Lord, and who performed many miracles in the name of the Lord, that that person never knew the Lord? How is that possible? Well, we get our answer in the command that Christ gives at the end of verse 23. Depart from me. Get out of my presence. Get out of here. You who practice lawlessness. I'm saying, what in the world does this have to do with... Oh, I hope you see the connection. I see it right here. Practice Lawlessness. Live in lawlessness. What is, what is lawlessness? It is a life without the law. A life that is not lived according to God's commands. That's what it is. These people, though they're casting out demons, prophesying, and even doing miracles, are not living according to God's word. They're saying that they're a servant of the king, but they're not doing what the king commands. It's much like a child. I'm not going to name a name because all my kids have done this. You send them up to clean their room. And they get up there and they look at everything and they're like, whoa, this is a mess. Well, they probably don't think that. They're like, okay, where can we stuff all this stuff so it looks clean? Most likely what they're thinking. But what if they get up there and they decide, you know what? My mom really likes comfortable, hey, bear with me, really comfortable blankets. So I'm going to knit a blanket for her, a really comfortable, like really soft wool, oh, just great. So they knit it up and let's say Megan comes up the steps and she looks in there and she's like, what have you been doing this whole time? You've been up here for like six hours. I thought you'd be done cleaning by now. Oh, look what we made for you. Look at this beautiful, beautiful blanket, Mom. It's like, well, that's not what I asked you to do. Is that pleasing to the mother? No, because the child didn't obey it's not that that thing was bad, but it was not according to what the mom asked for. And it makes me question my, in my own life, 
How often do I do what I think pleases the Lord instead of finding out what pleases the Lord? Right? We say we delight in the Word of God, and yet if we only get in the Word because we have to, not because we want to know God's will, because we delight in Him, we get in His Word and we just read, and Lord, I want to live for You. I want to live according to Your Word. I don't want to practice lawlessness. I don't care how much fruit people think I have if I'm not living according to God's express will, His Word. And if we say we are led of the Spirit of God and we don't live according to His Word, we're being led by a different spirit. God's Word will never contradict the move of the Spirit. Never. I think this is a big issue with a lot of more liberal-leaning now Pentecostal churches or extremely legalistic on the other extreme, is they begin to create theology and doctrine based on what they think pleases God instead of what God's Word actually says. They say, well, this the Spirit's leading me. Okay, why can I not find that in the Word of God? Why do I have to take one verse completely out of context to, to see that truth? If it is truth. Well, Jesus wasn't done. He actually goes on in in verse 24 to give us a really good example of this. So in verse 24 of chapter 7, Therefore, so in light of this, what I just told you about these people who are going to be sent into utter darkness, who will endure hell. These people who are not going to enter into my rest, who are not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, therefore, in light of them, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, acts, takes the word and says, Lord, okay, this is what you said. I'm going to do it. That's what he's talking about. May be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So if we may think of it this way, the foundation will be the words of God, right? It's already there. That solid rock right there. And our works are built upon that rock. Right? Those of you who have been in construction of any kind, when you build on a foundation, that foundation is there. It's solid. And what you build on it is what is lasting if the foundation is good. If the foundation is bad, then what will happen with all the things built upon it? Just crumble. We're going to see that. So the foundation is the words of the Lord, and and our acts are the building that is built upon it. 
he built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the winds came, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it did not fall. Why? For it had been founded on the rock. So the actions that that person took, the, the building and all that, was sturdy and strong. Why? Because that person had founded it on truth, the bedrock of God's Word. They weren't going out and testing to see which foundation they should build on. They weren't doing multiple, okay, let's have a, a concrete one here, or let's do a dirt one here, and, and sand and see which one lasts. No, this person took God at His Word and began to live by it. If you delight in God's Word, that's what we do. David figured out that he was building on a bad foundation, right? He was trying to return worship, right worship of God through the ark coming into Jerusalem. He found out that he was on the wrong foundation, and then he sought the Lord according to his Word, according to his degree. And when he found out what God said... He began to be able to bring the ark in according to God's defined truth. So that's the person, verses 24 through 25, that person who hears the words and acts on them. And in verse 26 we see, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, Does not act or do, who does not do them. Will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the winds came, the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. This makes me think of a pretty famous psychologist in Canada named Jordan Peterson. Unless the Lord does a work in his heart, he loves the principles of God's Word. And he's trying to live by them. But the problem is, Jesus is not Lord of his life. So though he has been building this structure, his, his argumentation falls apart because he doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the way to heaven. And though he has many good things to say, he's very articulate, extremely intelligent, and lots of liberals don't like him. Unfortunately, Christians are running to him like, oh, he's such a great guy. Well... I will say I do watch some of his videos and I've found him to be interesting. But the problem is his foundation is not the Lord. His foundation is, is logic and reason. And unless God does a work in his heart and shows him, look, you're trying to put that ark on a, car, a cart and I told you to carry it. 
Unless he builds his worship on the rock, Jesus Christ, and his word, then it doesn't matter how well he seems to understand God's word, that building will fall down. It will be ruined completely. There are many examples in architecture of buildings that needed a better foundation. But none more um, famous than the Leaning Tower of Pisa, other than the fact that it didn't fall somehow. But it was continuing to lean. Right, The foundation of that building was not sufficient to keep it. So, guess what? They're having to go in and and fix the foundation from underneath because if they kept letting it lean, it would eventually topple because the foundation wasn't sufficient for the building that was built upon it. And there are tons of stories like this, especially in Florida and areas where the, the sand is all that's there. It's just sand. So they have to drive pylons. My brother was telling me about this, who does bridges. They have to drive pylons that are like, I don't even remember how long, insanely long into the ground and multiple just to to secure concrete to so that when the sand moves and stuff, they they don't lose a bridge. It's insane that the amount of work they have to do to build on sand. And yet there's no guarantee. Could you imagine if an earthquake hit a a place that's built on sand? It's not going to last. So the question that I have for us is, are we relying on sincerity Or are we relying on the Word? We need to be sincerely following Jesus. That's not the point. The point is that sincerity is not sufficient. Sincerity without truth will only lead to failure. We saw that with David. David was an imperfect king, yet when he failed, he turned to the Lord. Every time. He turned to the Lord. Sometimes after multiple sins in a row, like with Bathsheba, God got his attention. But in every case, David turned back to the Lord because he realized that the only way that he would have strength and hope and peace was through the Word of God. And that's what Psalm 119 is pointing us to. When you delight in the Lord, you make action. You take action upon your delight so that you can please the Lord. Because delighting God's Word is only good if it's because God is the one who wrote it. You can delight in its literary content. You can delight in in the words that are written on the page. But if you are not delighting in it because it is God's revealed will for our lives, then it's useless. 
that psychologist Jordan Peterson, he he can he looks at the Bible as kind of a mythos, a myth. Great myths that apply to life. And though he doesn't deny a God, he doesn't believe in the God of the Bible. Though he believes, interestingly, that many of the the myths of the scriptures are very helpful for for the the life of the human being. But because he embraces evolution and, and other rational, logical, so-called things, he, he can't build a foundation on the rock. People will make fun of you for building on the rock. You'll be ridiculed. You may be canceled in the culture that we live in. But in the end, you want a house that's going to stand. You want to stand before the Lord and hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Not just faithful servant. Well done. You you built on the rock. And, and look at this, that God has, through His power in you, through His Holy Spirit, has enabled you to build this monument to His grace. Not to yourself, like Saul tried to do. This is a monument of His grace. We don't stop working as Christians. It's interesting, some of the, some of the, the men in, in history who have the strongest um, Christian influence were men who continued to work for Christ. Not to earn their salvation, but they're like, Lord, you've done this for me. I want the world to know. I want them to see your glory in my life. That's what David longed for. He longed to see the worship of God in his people. Because he loved the Lord. In Psalm 119.52, this is what the psalmist says. He says, I have remembered your ordinances from of old. This word ordinances, exact same word. O Lord, and comfort myself. You mean me, the psalmist, can actually find comfort in the decrees of God? We should be able to too. Why? Because they tell us what God desires of us which to me gives me great joy. I don't have to run around wondering what the Lord wants or what He desires, what His will is, because He's made His will clear in His Word. So are we believing that sincerity is sufficient in our lives? I often hear people talk in the Christian culture, well, I mean, that person was sincere, so it, it must have been sufficient for their salvation. Have you heard that before? Yeah, they, they, were, they were sincere, so that's all what mattered. I'm like, they're sincere Muslims blowing themselves up, but they're not going to heaven. 
Why? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and none can come to the Father except through Him. So will we delight in the commands and ordinances of our Lord, or we will we shirk at them, oh, I couldn't do that. That might make my family or my friends or my work or whatever disown me. Maybe I'll lose my job because I have convictions about this or that. Maybe I have to quit my job because I don't, I don't agree with what my business is doing. Who knows? But when we decide to found our lives on God's Word... It doesn't matter what comes against us, what torment, what flood, what wind. In the end, we will stand before him as servants who have done his will. And he will welcome us in to his heavenly home that he's been preparing for us. Let's pray. Father, give us delight in your word that results in action to do your will. Lord, you are a great and mighty God. You are holy and righteous, just, and yet you sow love and mercy and grace to us by allowing us to be part of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning, that we would delight in you such that our lives would be lived building on the foundation of your word, building on our foundation in Jesus Christ as the Lord of our lives. Give us a zeal and passion to share the truth of your word with our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers, classmates. Lord, that we would be a light in this dark world that is looking in all the wrong places for truth. Lord, give us hearts after you, we pray. Help us to honor you above all things. For you alone are God. You alone are worthy of all our praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.